Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> One Sunday, I'm just not even going to have to say that. I'll just look up at you and your Bibles will just miraculously open to 1 Corinthians. This is our 60th sermon in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to announce this because uh, hopefully it will give me some accountability. And that is, my goal is to finish this epistle by March of 2024, which will put me at three years in 1 Corinthians, which uh, for all intents and purposes is not that bad for one of the longest books in the New Testament, longest epistles in the New Testament. And we have taken many and frequent breaks. Uh, so Lord willing, we'll round up this epistle. Um, this morning, we're just going to look, you know, I say that, and then I'm going to announce to you that this morning, we're just going to look at two verses. <laughs> uh, but they are two very important verses in chapter 12. And these two verses in chapter 12 will deal with the subject of ecclesiology. Now, the word ecclesiology means the study of the church. The, the word, the Greek word for church in your New Testament is the word ecclesia. So ecclesiology is the study of the ecclesia. And this is a very important uh, sermon. It's a very important set of two verses. If you get this this morning, I believe that this entire section of 1 Corinthians where Paul is dealing with the church and corporate worship and the body of Christ if you get this, uh, you'll get this whole section. And I'll tell you that the first half of this sermon is going to be very applicatory. We're going to kind of, kind of do it backwards. Usually you have the theology up front and then the application. But the way the text breaks down, the first half of this verse is going to be a little bit more applicatory, heavy on the application. And then verse 13, as we'll see, will be heavy in doctrine and theology. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me and to be attentive this morning as we look at these two verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, looking at verses 12 and 13. These are the words of God. For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made or have been all made to drink into one spirit. One of the keys to expository preaching is identifying the main idea of the passage. If we fail to do this, we will fail to receive the overall message that God is communicating to us in His Word. More than that, if we fail to identify the main idea of the passage, we will miss the intended effect that God's message is meant to have as we faithfully apply it to our lives. Exposition is wonderful, but exposition is not a means of itself. Exposition is a means of an end. We exposit the Bible and we preach it line by line, verse by verse, not just so we can have an intellectual knowledge of what it means, but so that we can apply the truth of what it means to our lives. When we read the Word of God, we must remember that God's desire is never merely to impart information. His desire is to use the information He gives to transform the way we think and live. That's why James tells us in his epistle, 
not to just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. The word of God will not have a transformative effect on us if we miss what it's actually saying to us. If you take a verse of scripture and you use it as a string, as a springboard to preach whatever you want to preach, uh, you're not going to be communicating God's message to God's people. If you read 1 Corinthians 12 and all you see are some lessons about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts, you're missing the point of the passage. If you read 1 Corinthians 12 and all you see is a metaphor about the nature of the church, you're missing the point of the passage. These things are included in the chapter, but why are they included? What is the main idea of the text? What is, if you will, Paul's thesis statement? Well, remember that this church had a fundamental problem with schism division, and disunity. It was their problem in Corinth. And the problem was fueled by a prideful, selfish individualism. Pride and disunity are not fixed within a theological, or not fixed with a theological lesson. You don't fix pride by just teaching a a doctrinal lesson. You, You fix pride by applying the truth of God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit, to the hearts of God's people. So Paul's goal in chapter 12 is not to give a treatise on spiritual gifts. The Corinthian problem would not be solved by a definitional knowledge of the spiritual gifts. It wasn't that they didn't know what the gifts were, right? It was that they didn't understand why the gifts were given. The Corinthians thought that God had given them spiritual gifts so they could have a spiritual gift talent show to determine who the most spiritual church member was. When the reality is that God gives spiritual gifts so that we can serve others, not bring glory to ourselves. But the Corinthian problem ran deeper than that. Not only were they unaware of the purpose of spiritual gifts, they didn't understand the fundamental nature of the church. It was their problem. They thought the church was all about them. They thought the church was uh, all about satisfying their own desires, tickling their own fancy. So, again, I ask you, what's the main idea of 1 Corinthians 12? Through the diversity of spiritual gifts, God is equipping the church to come together in mutual love and service as the one united body of Christ. That's what Paul is getting at in chapter 12. And what God wants you to take away from this text is not a neat lesson about spiritual gifts. In fact, the definition of the gifts is almost irrelevant to the text. When I preached through the preceding verses on the spiritual gifts, I told you that faithful exposition requires me to try to give you some sort of meaning to these gifts. But that is not the main idea of this chapter. Uh, That's why we we ought not use the spiritual gifts in chapter 12 as as tools to further our division. In fact, let me be so bold as to say that if you do that, you're just as bad as the Corinthians. Well, I think it means this, and you think it means that. Well, I have this gift, and I'm better than you. And, uh, you know, well, well, prophecy means this. Prophecy has ceased. And if you think prophecy hasn't ceased, so you're a heretic. And that's what the Corinthians were doing fighting over spiritual gifts instead of using them to glorify God in the body. 
God does not want us to come to 1 Corinthians and argue. He wants us to come. By the way, he doesn't want us to come to any point of Scripture and argue. Okay? Sometimes we have to, <laughs> to defend the truth. Uh, but that's not God's goal. It's not God's goal. He wants us to come to 1 Corinthians, specifically chapter 12, and have a greater love for the church as the body of Christ. Amen. One of the follies of our carnal thinking is that we often use the things that God gives us to incite arguments instead of worship. We'd rather sit and fight about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ than we would praise God that we've been brought into the body at all. We'd rather sit and talk about how great our church is and how our church is better than other churches because we do this and we do that and we do this and we do that than we would sit and just talk about what a blessing it is to be a member of the Lord's church, period. I get together with pastors and I want to talk about different subjects and Let's talk about the Word of God. Oh, okay, do you want to talk about what a blessing it is that God has preserved His Word and delivered it? No, we want to argue about which translation's best. That's what we want to talk about. Well, let's talk about the Lord's Supper. Oh, you want to talk about how beautiful this emblem is that, that God has given us to, to represent the... No, we want to argue about should it be wine or should it be grape juice or should it be open or should it be closed or you know, should it be common cut? We want to argue instead of worship. What a blessing that the Holy Spirit has made us members of the body of Christ. Amen. And not only has He made us members of His body, but He's given us spiritual gifts to use in the body. He's given us abilities to glorify God. Do you realize that before you were converted, you did not bring any glory to God? in anything you did, and that the only glory that an unconverted person brings to God is the declaration of His justice in His condemnation. But now you, even you, a redeemed sinner by the power of the Holy Spirit, can glorify your Creator. What a blessing. If we could just see the nature of the church as it's presented in Scripture, we would see how antithetical are the attitudes of pride and division. There's no room for pride in the body. No one sits around and argues uh, about whether hearts are more important than lungs. And no one sits around and argues about whether ears are more important than eyes. Let me tell you something. If you lose your heart, you'll be just as dead as if you lose your lungs. There's no room for division in the body. But what happens, not, I don't want to get too grotesque, I know we have some former EMS military personnel. What happens when you sever a body part from the body? It dies. It just shrivels up and dies. And, and if you don't, what an illustration. If it's severed from the body with, with the medical advancements, if, if you're quick enough, you can reattach it and, and salvage it. But if it stays detached from the body for too long, it's hopeless. It's gone. Rots. Decays. Dies. You don't divide your body parts from your body. So why would we divide in the body of Christ? In the first 11 verses, 
Paul focused in and addressed the Corinthians' question about spiritual gifts. But now, to drive home this main idea, he takes a step back and he presents the framework of the church as the body of Christ. You've all heard the the term body of Christ used to reference the church. And so that's what we're looking at today, this metaphor. And he will show us what the church is, how it is formed, and if we truly understand what God is saying in this text, we will see how utterly incompatible the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is with selfish individualism. In this text, there are three distinct demonstrations of unity in the body of Christ. Three. And I'm going to give them to you. Okay? Number one, I want you to see in verse 12, the simile. The simile. Our text begins with a metaphoric description of the church. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. He says, For as the body, and he's, he's here he's speaking of the human body. For as the body is one and hath many members, your one body, your one human body, is made up of a plethora of parts. Scientists have identified 78 distinct organs in the human body. And I was flabbergasted when I saw that list, and so, of course, what did I do? Well, I looked up the list, and I'm starting to read through all these organ systems, and it just amazes me at the the glorious design of God in the body, putting all of these organ systems together. And really, you can't even begin to count the parts of the body. For instance, bones are one of those organ systems. So you think about all the bones in the human body. That's just one of those 78 organ systems. And each part of your body performs a specific function that only it can do. Your eyes cannot receive sound waves. Your ears cannot process light and images. Each part is unique in its design and its contribution to the body. Yet no part has, listen, any value or worth apart from its place in the body. A foot is useless if it has no leg to be attached to. An esophagus is useless if it has no stomach to deliver food to. A heart is useless if it has no blood to pump. So Paul says, the body is one, has many members, but then he says, and all the members of that one body are one body. The eye is not a body by itself. The hand is not a body by itself. The lung is not a body by itself. All of these parts, these members, they have to come together to form one body. It's a beautiful, beautiful illustration. And then Paul says, so also is Christ. Now, Paul uses the word Christ as shorthand for the body of Christ. And and I'll show you the reason why he does that in a minute. It's interesting. But first, I want you to just notice the overall teaching of this simile, this metaphor. Paul is teaching us that the body of Christ is comprised of many individual members. No member is unimportant. He'll stress that later in the chapter. Every member is valuable and needed. Every single member is valuable 
and needed. But no member is, in and of themselves, the body. You're not the church. I'm not the church. We are the church. We are the church. And there's a sense, and you have to be careful with how far you you take this illustration. Science also teaches us that the human body recreates itself. You know what I mean by that? Cells die, new cells come in. And there's a sense in which it's it's a new body, right? Same thing with the church. When we receive new members into the church, they become indispensable, valuable parts of the body. And when, when members leave the church, we have to figure out how we're going to fill the gap that they leave when they depart from the body. Right? Understanding the church as the body of Christ obliterates several false notions about the church in its relation to our Christian life. There are those who think that church is optional. They think that they don't need the church. They can serve the Lord on their own. This text teaches us that a Christian severed from the body of Christ is about as useful as an arm severed from the human body, which is to say not useful at all. There are also those who think that their gifts and talents make them more useful than other parts of the body. That they're better because they have gifts that others don't have. Well, this text shows us that we are only useful insofar as we function in the body. Preaching is wonderful. But only when it is done to the edification of the body. Serving is great. If you have the gift of service, it's great. But if you're not in the body, you have no one to serve. Just as feet need legs, and hands need arms, and hearts need blood, so too do we need one another in the body. I want to be clear. Your salvation is not dependent on anyone. But, ordinarily, your usefulness in service to the Lord, your obedience in the Christian life, you need others in the Christian life. You need them. I mean, there are commands in the Bible that if I don't have a church, I can't fulfill those commands. How am I supposed to love the members of the body if I'm a lone ranger with no body to love? Presupposes. By the way, let me just say this. Read the New Testament cover to cover. You will not find me one example of a faithful Christian who's not in some way accountable and united to a local body somewhere. Amen. So won't find it. This is the beauty of spiritual gifts. We all have them. Right? He says that, right? Everybody has them. It's given to everyone. So we all have them. What does that mean? We're all useful. But none of us have them all. Which means what? We need one another. Isn't that beautiful? How God has made us co-dependent upon one another. I, I have gifts that God has given me to serve you that you don't have. And you have gifts that God has given you to serve me that I don't have. Do you see how gloriously God has architected the body of Christ? 
there's a reality that is deeper than just our usefulness to one another that cultivates true unity in the body. I don't want us to stop at that, that idea of just usefulness to one another because I don't want you to get the idea that we just come to church because of how useful we are to one another. And it's a reality that Paul will unfold all throughout chapter 13, which I'll look forward to preaching through when we get back from Germany. I'm excited about chapter 13. Let me borrow from another metaphor that the Bible uses to describe the church. The church is also described several places as the bride of Christ. And let me ask you, married folk, why do you and your spouse stay together? Some of you look like you're really having to think about it. I don't know if I should be worried. Is it because of what you can provide for one another? Is that it? I mean, is it, is it just because of physical attraction, temporal excitement? I, hey, I stay married to this person because of what she can do for me or what he can do for me, what he can provide for me. Or is it because you have made a covenantal promise to one another to love, care, and live, and unite as one flesh till death do you part? So too it is with the church. Like marriages, churches based on carnal attractions will fail. We should be thankful for our usefulness to one another. We should be excited about the gifts in the body. But ultimately, that's not what's going to keep us together. Churches that endure are churches who have covenanted together and promised to love one another as members of one body. If God strikes me dumb takes away my sight, takes away my hearing, and I'm no longer able to serve you in preaching the Word of God, I'm still going to be a loved member of this body. And you will be too. Because it's deeper than just what we can offer one another. I'm afraid that this is what so much of the evangelical world is missing today. When we treat churches like products at a shopping mall, and we're the consumer, and, and we're going out... And we're going to pick a church based on what it can do for us. Uh, this church has this ministry. This church has a children's ministry. And this church has a bingo night on the third Friday of the month. And so we're going to go there because of what it can do for me. We ask, what does this church have to offer me? Uh, what value does this church bring to my life? But that's not what church is. The church is a body that you become a part of because you love the members of the body. I've been asked, if I'm going to just be, just be vulnerable and open, I've been asked, are you looking for another church? Are you looking for a, a church that could pay you more? Bigger city? I say, no. I'm not in it for the money. I'm in it because I love those people. That's why I get up and go to Christ Fellowship every Sunday. I love these people. They're my people. It's my body. Can the Lord lead someone to another body? I believe He can in His providence. I believe He can. I love the story of the old particular Baptist pastor. He wrote the hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. He pastored a little country church in western London. A little small church phenomenal preacher, got called to pastor a much bigger church in London, in town. Loaded up his wagon. Loaded up all of his stuff. 
getting ready to depart, getting ready to go off to this church. And his whole congregation is there. They're weeping and they're crying. And he looks at his wife and he says, Honey, unload our stuff. We're not leaving. And he wrote, Blessed be the tie that binds. So he loves those people. Can God lead men to other churches? I believe he can. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's once you join, you don't go anywhere. I'm not saying that. But there ought to be a love that binds us together. And if you love the members of the body, you'll have a desire to serve and to be served in the context of that body. That's why Paul didn't spend much time giving definitions to the spiritual gifts. The, the church didn't need more information about what the gifts were. The church needed love for one another so that they could use their gifts for the right reasons. A failure to understand what this text teaches is why we have an epidemic of Lone Ranger Christians who have no care for the body of Christ. Epidemic. We have a bunch of random body parts floating around with no connection to the body. And I'm not talking about those who are in between or those who are visiting and those who are looking. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who have no desire to be united with the local body. No desire. Body parts are not meant to exist as isolated entities. They're meant to function as members of the body. Amen. So let's get back to this detail. Very interesting detail in this verse. And that's Paul's usage of the word Christ as shorthand for the body of Christ. Why does he say that? It seems odd to us, right? Nobody wakes up on Sunday morning and says, well, it's the Lord's Day, time to go to Christ. We don't say that. We say what? Sunday, time to go to church. So why does Paul say, so also is Christ, to refer to the body of Christ? By using Christ as a representative of the body, Paul is emphasizing the interrelationship between Christ and his people. There is a very real sense, brothers and sisters, in which you meet with Christ when you meet with his people. Because he is present in the corporate assembly in a way that he is not present anywhere else. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. We can all get together, go out and have lunch in the name of hunger. We can enjoy Christian fellowship. You can get together at work, a staff meeting in the name of UPS or the name of TDOT. And there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit indwells you and He's with you. But when we, as the church, come together in His name to worship Him, to serve Him, He is here in a way in which He's not here anywhere else. It's the beauty of the church. So when we read this, this isn't just the First Baptist Church of Corinth. This is the body of Christ. And listen, before we are Baptist or confessional or reform or Calvinist or whatever other label that we want to attack on our church sign, before we're anything else, we are the body of Christ meeting in Paris, Tennessee. Never forget that. Never forget that. If we would just start thinking like this, just imagine how many petty differences would just seem so minuscule and insignificant in light of the reality of who we are as the body of Christ. Furthermore, let me ask you this. Where does the world see Christ today? 
ideally, in the church. It's our job to make Christ visible to the world. When we go out and we function in society as the church, we aren't just representing Christ Fellowship, particular Baptist chapel. We're representing Jesus Christ because we are His body. Remember the question that Jesus asked Saul on the Damascus Road. What did He ask him? He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? How did Saul persecute Jesus? Jesus had ascended into heaven. Jesus was at the right hand of the Father. Paul was persecuting Christ because Christ is so intimately connected to his church that there really can't be a rigid separation. To slander and attack and malign and disrespect the church is to slander, attack, malign, and disrespect Christ. He is the head of the body. And in Acts 9, Paul became vividly aware of the solidarity between Christ and his church. Let me illustrate this for you, brother. If I said to you, you know, brother, I really like you. I can't stand your wife. I don't like her. Don't want to be around her. Don't want to have anything to do with her. But I like you. I love hanging out with you. What would you say to me? How would you respond? However you would respond to that is exactly how we should respond when we hear someone say, I love Jesus, but I don't like his church. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let me speak pastorally for a moment. An internet connection and a YouTube account are not what qualifies you to be a preacher or a teacher. And there is an abundance of horrible doctrine that is peddled by unqualified teachers who have no relationship and accountability to the local church. Wasn't it just a year or two ago when one of the most famous evangelists in modern American history, after he died, it came out that he was living this lie of a life? You know who I'm talking about? What, what was the common denominator? No accountability to the local church. No accountability to the local church. There is an abundance of horrible doctrine that is peddled by these teachers, and, and in almost every case, a portion of their teaching is explaining to you why the church is so horrible and unnecessary. Because they want you to just stay home and watch them on YouTube. You don't need the church. On the other hand, brothers, to love the church is to love Christ. You know, the last few weeks, my son and my wife have been ill. They haven't been able to, to be with me. And several of you have texted me asking how my wife is doing. And you know what? I, f I feel loved when you do that. Because we're so connected. We're one flesh. You love her, you love me. You love me, you love her. Mm -hmm. To love the body is to love the head. You show me a man or a woman that loves the church, loves being with the church, loves serving the church, I'll show you someone who loves Christ. When I hear you talk about, I was at Brother So-and-So's house and we had a great time and we talked about the goodness of God, that blesses me way more than if you would have told me, yep, I spent my entire week at home alone reading books. It shows me you love the body of Christ and you love Christ. One of the ways you can evaluate the health of your Christianity is to contemplate your attitude towards the body. 
there's no such thing, I know, there's no such thing as a perfect church. And if you ever find one, don't join it, you'll ruin it. (laughs) Our church is far from perfect. You spend enough time around here, you'll see it. You'll see the bumps and the bruises and the holes and the imperfections, the sins, the ugliness. You'll see it. It's here. At the end of the day, we're still a bunch of sinners. You put a bunch of sinners together, there's going to be some hiccups in the road. But we're a bunch of sinners who love one another and are committed to one another and have been led by the Holy Spirit to unite together as one body. And this is a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place. Those who are ready to abandon the local church at the drop of a dime because they got their feelings hurt are really just manifesting a a low view of the church. They're saying, I'm committed to this body as long as everything is easy and agreeable to me, but the first time it becomes difficult, first time somebody says something that I don't like, I'm out of here. Church hurt is real. I get that. But, but sometimes I hear these stories of petty reasons that people have left the church, and I just want to say, you're right, the apocalypse is upon us. They criticized the color of your tie, and the preacher wouldn't shake your hand, and now you're out of there. The same goes for those who are so ready to leave over doctrinal issues that are really tertiary. There are doctrinal reasons to leave a church. If a whole church is moving into unorthodoxy, moving into heresy, and you're, you're standing in the gap, but the church is going the other way, it's time to find a place to worship. Okay? But all these petty disagreements that cause us to just get up and leave the church. Listen, brothers, I understand. Our church is a young church. We're a church plant. We've only been around a few years. If we're going to walk together in the same body for any length of time, I'm going to hurt your feelings at some point. I'm going to say things you disagree with. I'll probably say things really loudly from the pulpit that you disagree with. (laughs) It's going to happen. But in those times when we feel personally offended, may God help us to have a superseding love for the body of Christ. I'm not old by any stretch. Most of my pastor friends are much older than I am and have been doing this a lot longer than I am, but I'll say it this way. The longer I spend in the ministry, the more I realize that the things we divide over really are not worth dividing over. In most every case. In most every case. Because the church of Jesus Christ is more important than you, and it's more important than me, it's more important than your feelings, it's more important than my feelings, it's more important than the ministry of any one man. No preacher, no pastor is more important than the church. It's more important for the health of your soul that you are connected to the body of Christ than it is for you to be in a place where no one disagrees with you and your ego is stroked every week. May we remember these things and strive to maintain unity through the Spirit in the bonds of peace because we love one another and we love Christ more than we love ourselves and being right. And may we endeavor to unite as the body of Jesus Christ. I'm not a prophet. This is not a prophetic statement, but listen. 
Testing will come. Testing will come. There will come things in this body over the course of however long the Lord allows us to last that will put this to the test. We will, we will become at odds with one another, personal insult, uh, disagreement, schism. The enemy who loves to sow discord among the brethren will attack. And in those moments, you remember, you remember that we are members of one body. One body. It's going to hold us together. Have your arguments. Talk it out. Make sure you hug. (laughs) Make sure you say, brother, I love you. Sister, I love you. And that's more important than me being right about this interpretation of this one verse or me me calling myself this theological term and you not. Members of the same body. Okay, that's my application. Let me give you some theology. That was the simile. Now, verse 13, I want you to see the symbols. The symbols. In verse 12, we see a more practical illustration of our unity as one body. In verse 13, Paul provides a doctrinal framework for how this unity is accomplished theologically. Think about it like this. Verse 12 shows us the house. And we get to look at the house and how it's decorated and everything. Okay? Verse 13 shows us the blueprint of how that house was built and put together. Okay? Now, there is no shortage of controversial opinions about the proper interpretation of 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. And so, I really don't think it's all that difficult. I think we will be able to understand it. But here's what I'm going to do. I'll tell you what, what Paul is doing here in verse 13. And then I'll break the verse down textually and prove it to you, okay? In verse 13, Paul is using baptism and the Lord's Supper as word pictures to illustrate the inner reality of what God does when he saves us and how that inner reality corresponds with our membership in the local church. I'll say that again. He's using baptism and the Lord's Supper as word pictures to illustrate the inner reality of what God does when he saves us and how that inner reality corresponds with our membership in the local church. Okay? Follow me. Notice verse 13. Four. Four. This verse is meant to explain what's already been said. So... We need to take into account all that Paul has already taught us about the church as the united body of Christ. For, and then he, he speaks of the one body. He says, for, by one spirit, are we all baptized into one body. So I want us to look at that phrase there, one body. One of the determinative questions in properly interpreting this verse is whether Paul is talking about a universal body or a local body? Well, how do we answer that question? We just look at the immediate context. In this section of 1 Corinthians, is Paul giving instructions that pertain to a universal church or to a local church? In chapter 11, in verse 18, Paul says, when you come together in the church, I hear that there are divisions among you. In chapter 11, in verse 20, he says, when you come together in one place. 11.33, he says, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. 
Does that sound universal or local to you? Coming together in one place, okay? Look at verses 25 and 26 of chapter 12. Notice what he says. He says that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Brothers and sisters, there's a sense in which I love Christians in China. I love Christians in Europe. I don't have the same care for them as I do with my local assembly. And then he says this in verse 26, and whether one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Then verse 27, which really I think answers the question, he says to the church at Corinth, now ye are the body of Christ. He doesn't say your church is one little microcosm of the body, you're one little part of the body, and then all the churches make up the body. No, he says, you are the body. Clearly then, the context of 1 Corinthians 12 is the local body of Christ, which the Bible calls the church. It would be entirely unnatural to come to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 and impose a universal invisible body on the text. It's just not in the chapter. Now, I'm going to say something. If you're not already startled, I'm going to say something. But before I I do, before you start the heresy trial, hear me out. We need to move away from thinking about the church in terms of a very rigid, visible, invisible church distinction. What is that distinction? That is, all those who are baptized members of the church, they are members of the visible body. But only those members who are truly saved are members of the real invisible church. The qualm I take is referring to the invisible church as the real church. This framework, by the way, comes to us from paedo-baptists who left Roman Catholicism. That's where we get the rigid visible-invisible church distinction. They baptize infants who make no profession of faith, and they admit them to church membership, and they call them members of the visible church. But that distorts the biblical view of what the church is, because then they're reading their Bibles, and they come to descriptions of the church as holy, as redeemed, as sanctified, as regenerate. And they say, wait a minute, The Bible says that the church is a holy, regenerate, redeemed body, but we have members of the church who make no profession of faith in Christ. How are we going to reconcile this? Well, they say, ah, they're members of the visible church. It's not the true church, it's the visible church. But those who are really saved are members of the true church, the invisible church. The problem is that it's a distinction that the Bible doesn't make. Of the 115 times that the word church is used in the Bible, it almost always means a local, visible congregation of believers. That's what it means. The the very word ecclesia means a called out assembly. You could translate the word church in the Bible as congregation or assembly. And yes, we know that we are imperfect and unbelievers manage to find their way into the membership of the church. That happens. Oftentimes, Baptists will be accused of, well, you think that 
No unbelievers are in your church. No, we don't think that. We just try not to have that happen. (laughs) We want to be consistent. We want to build local churches after the pattern of the heavenly church. But what is the solution for a church member who manifests himself as an unbeliever? It's church discipline, not creating a special theological category for them. The word body, by definition, is a localized term. It is something that is localized by union and united by locality. Whenever you speak of a body, you speak of something that's assembled in one place. Think about the body of of Congress that assembles, right? Now, let me be clear. There is an eschatological reality to the body of Christ. That is to say... There's coming a day when all of the elect of all ages will assemble in one glorious universal church. Our confession, chapter 26, paragraph 1, it says, The whole number of the elect which have been, are, and shall be assembled into one place can be properly called the universal church. And that eschatological church will not be divided by Anglican, Presbyterian, Methodist, or Baptist. There will be one great shepherd who will eternally pastor all of his sheep. But that day hasn't come yet. That day hasn't come yet. What we have in this age, when we talk about the church, is a local, visible body of baptized believers. That's what the church is. And I think that's important that we see that as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I also think that that this doctrine, and again, I'm not saying that there is no invisible, visible church distinction. I'm not saying that. Uh, There is the reality that there are members of the church who are unconverted and therefore are not truly partaking in faith of the blessings of the church. That's a reality. And there is a sense in which uh, within the visible body, uh, there are true converts and false converts. But what I'm saying is, is that the true church are those who have come together and united in baptism and have agreed to covenant together as a church. That's the true church. So having defined Paul's usage of the term body, the rest of this verse becomes a lot easier to understand. Let's look at the clause that's connected here. So we we know what the, the four is. We know what the body is. So he says, by one spirit are we all baptized into that one body. And here is where Paul is using the ordinances as a word picture to illustrate the spiritual reality of our unity in the body of Christ. Let me just give you the straightforward import of these verses and then unfold the deeper spiritual reality. What I'm giving to you is the plain, straightforward interpretation that you would have if you came to this text with the correct presuppositions. And you didn't come just assuming it's talking about some universal body. Just as the plain context of the passage leads us to identify the word body in a straightforward and literal sense, so too should we understand the reference to baptism. When Paul talks about being baptized into one body, he has in mind, first, the ordinance of water baptism that unites a believer to a local church. That's what he has in mind. The phrase, by one spirit, shouldn't confuse us. Why not? Well, because look earlier in verse 3 of chapter 12. And notice he says, Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. He uses the same phrase in verse 3 
to describe the way we come to confess the Lordship of Christ. By the influence of the Spirit, by the leadership of the Spirit, you are led to call Jesus Lord. So too, by the Spirit's leadership in your life, you are convicted of your sins, you confess Christ as your Savior, you are convicted of the truth of the Word of God, and you read in the Word of God that you were commanded as a Christian to be baptized and join a church by the Spirit. You were led to do those things. So on the surface, and and notice I'm saying on the surface because there's also an inner spiritual reality to these word pictures that we're going to look at. But on the surface, Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to unity by reminding them of their baptism in water that united them with the covenant people of God, the local church, the body of Christ. Listen to me. Uh, There are Christian groups, even within Reformedom, that have abused the doctrine of baptism and have taught that the doctrine of baptism has some sort of saving quality to it and that you are uh, converted through the ordinance of baptism. We categorically deny that doctrine as false. But I think, in many cases, we undervalue the importance and the significance of baptism. We look at it as just some thing we did, some rite of passage that we did, and we don't really... Think about our baptism, what that signifies. You wear a wedding ring that signifies... Wedding ring is not what makes you married. But if you are married, some of you, many of you wear a wedding ring. And I hope that when you look down at that wedding ring, you're reminded of that covenantal union between you and your wife, between you and your husband. It's important to you. So too is your baptism. But if you have a proper understanding of baptism as a means of grace, as a sign and seal of a deeper spiritual reality, then you know that when we talk about baptism, we can't just talk about baptism. Not about just the ordinance of immersion in water. We must connect the internal ordinance with its internal significance. So what does baptism signify? Baptism signifies that the one being baptized has first been born again and received an immersion into the Spirit of God who now indwells him. Water baptism into the local body of Christ is to be a picture of spirit baptism into the family of God. When an individual is baptized in water, here's what they're testifying. They are saying, just as this gospel minister is immersing me in water so too has Christ already immersed me in his spirit. That's what they're testifying. So many of the arguments surrounding verse 13 are about whether Paul is talking about water baptism or spirit baptism. Is this water? Is this spiritual? Is this water? Is this spiritual? It's spiritual water. (laughs) The solution is realizing it's not an either or, it's a both and. Because when we talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper, we can't just talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're symbols. We have to talk about what those symbols signify. By the way, this is not the only time that Paul uses water baptism as a word picture to illustrate a deeper spiritual reality. Romans 6, verse 3, where Paul says, Do you not know that as many of us, were, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? And you know, you'd say, come on, Paul, what do you mean? You can't be baptized into a death. You can't be immersed into a death. What does that mean? 
Paul would say, I know you can't be baptized into a death, but your immersion in water signifies that you are united with the death of Christ. That's what it means. And my argument, which I think is the simple, straightforward, contextual argument, is that's exactly what he's doing in chapter 12 and verse 13. Using baptism as a word picture. He's not saying to the Corinthians, all of you were dunked in the same pool of water, therefore be united. It's not what he's saying to them. What he's saying to them is all of you were baptized in water, which signified that all of you have been born again, regenerated, and indwelt by the same Spirit. Therefore be united because you are united by the power of Christ's Spirit. That's what he's saying. You follow? And by the way, the, the interpretation I'm giving you is not some novel uh, new view. One of the reasons why I'm not afraid to see water in verse 13, because I will tell you, most modern commentators on 1 Corinthians say that this has nothing to do with the local church and nothing to do with water baptism. But one of the reasons why I'm not afraid to see water and the local church in this verse is because the particular Baptists who put together the Baptist catechism cited this verse as a proof text to question 96 on baptism of the Lord's Supper. They, they read it and they said, yeah, of course, Paul's talking about baptism. Mm-hmm. Benjamin Bedham, in his exposition of the catechism, he refers to this phrase as the, I love this phrase, the cooperating influences of the Spirit. When you are baptized, when you partake of the Lord's Supper with faith in your heart, you're not just receiving an immersion in water. You're not just receiving a a, a pinch of bread and a thimble of wine. You're receiving the cooperating ministers of the Spirit through faith. The deeper, invisible, spiritual reality that is pictured in a visible, local reality. Okay? Baptism unites, but not by any efficacy or inherent virtue in the act of submerging someone in water. Baptism unites because it is a means of God's grace that the Spirit uses to signify an inner reality. And by the way, because baptism signifies, it signifies your union with Christ, you don't necessarily need to be baptized every time you move membership to a different local assembly. Because there is a sense in which local churches have this interconnectedness to them, even though they are independent local bodies. The real novel view of 1 Corinthians in this verse is to say that it has nothing to do with the local church. And that's the common view. And many, many great interpreters take this view. But if you just read the chapter and you, you see all throughout, he's talking to the local body of Christ at Corinth. And he says, we were all baptized in the one body. You are the body of Christ. Pretty plain and straightforward. The regenerating work of the Spirit cannot be seen with the physical eye, so God has given us the ordinance of baptism to signify this spiritual reality. And then he goes on and he says, and we've all been made to drink into one Spirit. Again, plenty of contentious debates as to what Paul has in mind here. I'm just going to suggest one view that corroborates with the view that we've already seen, and that is this. Just as Paul talks about being baptized into the body, and he has in mind the ordinance of water baptism, when he talks about drinking into one spirit, I believe he has in mind the Lord's Supper. And you say, come on, Pastor, 
who would take such a strange approach to this verse? Who in their right mind would see baptism in the Lord's Supper in verse 13? Well, in addition to the framers of the Baptist Catechism, this was also the view of Calvin. And Calvin says, quote, The baptism of believers, which is efficacious through the grace of the Spirit, for in the case of many, baptism is merely in the letter. What does that mean, baptism merely in the letter? That means you're baptized, but you don't have any faith in your heart. He was so close to being a Baptist. <laughs> he is now, amen? The symbol, just in the letter, but then he says, the symbol without the reality. You don't have faith. You're taking the Lord's Supper, you're being baptized. You have the symbol without the reality. But those who partake with faith, he says, but believers, along with the sacrament, receive the reality. He goes on and he says again, he says, quote, he teaches, that is Paul. Paul teaches, therefore, that believers, so soon as they are initiated by the baptism of Christ, are already imbued with a desire of cultivating mutual unity. And then afterwards, when they receive the sacred supper, they are again conducted by degrees to the same unity, as they are all refreshed at the same time with the same drink. He sees the reality, and he sees what the Spirit is doing underneath those realities. So what I'm preaching to you is not some modernized, nuanced Baptist view. This is the historic view of the Christian church on this passage. These outward rites symbolize internal realities. Next time we take the Lord's Supper, don't just think, well, these are all people who have been baptized and are members of the same church. But think, these are people that have been born again by the same Spirit, indwelt by the same Spirit, and have been led by the same Spirit to unite with this body of Christ. Paul wants us to view the ordinances as word pictures that cause us to see our great unity as members of Christ's body on earth. My time is gone. It's beyond gone. But let me very quickly just finish this verse and we'll get through it. The scope. So we've seen the simile, the symbols, and the scope. The scope of our unity in the body of Christ is in this verse when he says, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, the unifying power of the Spirit transcends all natural and physical barriers. I have more in common with someone in sub-Saharan Africa who has been baptized by the triune, into the triune name and partakes of the supper than I do with someone from Paris, Tennessee who has not been baptized in the triune name and is not united to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a real sense in which we have a stronger communi communication and communion with one another than we do even with our physical family. Remember the words of Jesus. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Mm -hmm. This is your family. This is your spiritual family. Furthermore, this text teaches us, this phrase in verse 13 teaches us that to divide on the basis of race is sin. Mm -hmm. To divide on the basis of social standing is sin. To divide on the basis of financial status is sin. There is no such thing as a black church. There is no such thing as a white church. There is no such thing as a rich church or a poor church or a southern church or a northern church. The only true church is the assembly 
of baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we tie this in with the context of 1 Corinthians? In chapter 12, Paul is discussing the place of spiritual gifts in particular, and then in this broader section of the epistle, he discusses various aspects of corporate worship. What do verses 12 and 13 teach us? Full circle, back to what I said at the very beginning. These verses, properly understood, verses 12 and 13 teach us that there is no room for selfish individualism in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your spiritual gifts are not about you. They're not for you to make a name for yourself. They were given to edify others. The worship of the church, what we do as a church, all the ministries of the church, they're not about you. It's not about me. Could you imagine the revival that would take place if we all came to church not thinking about what we were going to get out of it, but thinking about how we could be a blessing? And, you know, let me commend you. Because I believe that we're at a church imperfectly, but we're at a church where that goes on. I see it. And it's a blessing to my heart to see it. To see people coming to this assembly with the mindset of, I want to be a blessing to someone else with the mindset of, you know, earlier this week, so-and-so told me about this need that they had, and, and, and I want to help them meet it. With the mindset of, you know, there's a, there's a leaky faucet at the church, and I'm going to go and fix it before service starts. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. Why do we assemble as a church? To offer our worship? Yes, first and foremost. But also because we love the body. Love the body truly believe that this church, not this building, not this pulpit, not these pews, but these people, is the most beautiful and glorious place that I ever go to this side of heaven. Because this is where the presence of God is. This is where His people are. This is where His Word is proclaimed. This is where God has placed us. We need one another as members of the same body. Live like it. That's what Paul's saying. Live like it. Next time we're in 1 Corinthians, my goal is to just get us through the rest of chapter 12. Because even though that's a long section, the rest of chapter 12 is really just a lengthy explanation of what we've just learned today. Uh, So we look forward to that. We look forward to meeting together, being united, living out our Christian life as members of this body. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, uh, for a patient congregation that will uh, sit and, and listen as we go through the Word of God. And uh, even when we, we make much out of just one or two verses, how rich your Word is. Oh, how, how deep the truths of your Word are. We could preach one verse every Sunday uh, for the rest of our, our existence, and the only limitation would be our human inability to fully understand it. But the depth of your truth is so deep and so rich We pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to guide us and continue to lead us. Lord, help us to foster, cultivate, preserve, defend our unity as members of the one body of Christ here in Paris, Tennessee. And Lord, we pray for the bodies that assemble other places. May you unify them. And may you unify our body with other bodies that we might truly pursue that glorious picture, that reality that awaits us in heaven when we will assemble Father, I pray that you would remind me when I am tempted to divide from a brother or a sister on earth that I'm going to be united with them for the rest of eternity. Lord, help us to to 
seek out and pursue unity in the body of Christ. May Christ be praised and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.